Turn, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 2. We did finally make it to chapter 2, but I think we only did two verses last week or something like that. Well, we did survive our trip. Teresa and I drove a very large truck, 1,200 miles, to Provo, Utah. We uh, left on Thursday afternoon, got there Friday evening, unloaded the truck on Saturday morning, and flew home last night and got home at 11. So if, if I fall asleep in my own lesson, uh, just say a prayer and dismiss. Chapter 2, verse 1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And you come to him a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. He is going to use an analogy here of stones. Jesus is going to be referred to as a stone. In fact, he's going to be referred to as a living stone. He is going to be referred to as the cornerstone. We'll talk about that in just a moment. In addition, he's going to talk about us as being living stones. Because Jesus is the foundation... And we are the building up of some spiritual house. We need to figure out what that means. So why in the world would he refer to Jesus as a living stone? Well, let's read the whole passage and we'll come back. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame." So the honor for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So Jesus is a living stone. He is a cornerstone. I assume we all know what a cornerstone is. If you've ever built anything, whether it's a deck or a house or a building or a pyramid, you know that at the beginning you need to get something to build everything on top of. That something needs to be level, it needs to be pointing in the right direction, it needs to be sturdy because everything else is going to be measured off of that. I haven't built a whole lot of things with stone, but my wife and I have laid a lot of tile. And when you're laying tile, you have to start with a couple of tiles that are headed in the right direction. Because if they're not headed in the right direction, by the time you get to the wall on the other side of the room, it's going to really be in the wrong direction. <laughs> Jesus is going to be the cornerstone upon which everything 
The church is built. He is the cornerstone. He is the foundation stone. But he is a living stone. You keep wanting me to say living stone, don't you? A living stone. What do we mean by that? Well, he is alive and well. I think I've told you before, I remember reading a sermon by a famous pastor in town here about who was Jesus. Was. Because he died. And that was the end of the story. No. Jesus is a living stone. But what else does it say about Jesus? A living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Now, remember, we remind ourselves of this every week. The church to which Peter is writing is beginning to undergo persecution. We don't know the level of it, but we know that it's beginning to happen. And you're beginning to think, okay, I'm a Christian, I'm following after God, I'm following after Christ, and things aren't going well. Maybe I'm doing something wrong. Peter returns to Jesus and says, Jesus also was rejected by men. But what is more important than the fact that he was rejected by men was the fact that he was chosen and precious to God. Now here's the question. Would you rather be rejected by men and precious to God or precious and respected by men and you know the other one, right? So much of what we do is done in order to look good to the people around us. Do you remember last week's lesson? Put off hypocrisy. This idea of me dressing myself up, coming in here, trying to impress you when I'm not really what I'm pretending to be. Peter is telling the church, Jesus is a living stone. He was rejected by men. You are living stones. You are being rejected by men. But Jesus was precious, chosen in the eyes of God. He is encouraging the church to not give in to despair because of the rejection by those around them. But in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. What is a spiritual house? To the Jews, what would the spiritual house be? This is easy. The temple, okay? <sighs> Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt. They built a tabernacle as a place for God's presence and as a place to offer the sacrifices. And that tabernacle traveled with them. God was present in that holy place. David establishes the kingdom at Jerusalem, and David wants to build a house for God. He builds himself this palace, and he thinks, 
Jesus, God, I mean, not Jesus, God, God, why don't I build you a house? And God says, great idea, but don't do it. Your son will do it. Okay, so David spends his life collecting this stuff so that his son Solomon can build the temple. And they have this huge ceremony dedicating the temple, and God is present there. The spiritual house has two things. It has the presence of God, and that's where the sacrifices are offered. We, we are collectively being built into a spiritual house. Now, notice that he uses the word spiritual. It's not a physical house. You do know this, right? We've got a nice building here. This building is not the church. The church that I grew up in, uh, after the people moved, it became a school. And in the last several years, they just bulldozed the whole thing. And you go, how could they do that? But you know what? The church was not bulldozed. The building was bulldozed. The church is made up of the living stones where God is and the sacrifices are offered. Sacrifices. (gasps) A spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. That's you and me. Okay? We're going to talk about this just a little bit more in a moment, but I'll give you a hint. The nation of Israel, taken out of Egypt, the 12 tribes, or 13, depending on how you count. Remember, Joseph's two sons were both adopted, so some of the list have 12, including Levi, and some of them don't. Okay, you get the picture. So you have 12 tribes of Israel, one tribe of priests, the Levites. In order to be a priest, you had to be a Levite. It was a nation that had a tribe of priests. The priests were the only ones allowed to go into the spiritual house. They were the only ones allowed to offer the sacrifices. They were the only ones allowed to stand between fallen humanity and God. And now Peter tells us, you and I, We are the priesthood. We can enter the presence of God. We can intercede on behalf of others to God. We can offer the sacrifices. We keep getting back to the sacrifices. Just a moment. This is a big deal. Now, it is interesting, and I'm going to jump ahead right now just to get this thing out of the way. He's going to quote some phrases here in a moment, this being one of them, that were used in the Old Testament to talk about the nation of Israel. It was God's desire that the nation of Israel become a nation of priests. Huh. Or maybe it was looking forward. There are those who believe that these passages and others, the fact that they were quoted in the Old, they were given in the Old Testament talking about Israel, and today they are quoted 
talking about the church, shows that the church has replaced Israel. If you remember, last year we worked through the doctrinal statement of our church, and we were very adamant that the church is not a replacement for Israel. So what gives? We're quoting verses referring to Israel, and we're talking about the church. Well, we are not Israel, but we are still God's chosen people. It isn't that he unchose them and he chose us, but he has chosen us. So he uses the same imagery that was used in the Old Testament to talk about Israel, sometimes to talk about us, but not to imply a replacement of Israel. So just keep that in mind as we work through this list of things. A holy priesthood to offer, here it comes, spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Remember, nation of Israel brought out of Egypt, God gives them detailed instructions about all the sacrificial system. A lot of blood, a lot of slitting of throats, a lot of dead animals. It's a bloody mess. We know, and if you don't know, go read the book of Hebrews. We know that all of that was a picture of Jesus. Jesus is the final sacrifice. There is no getting the goat, slitting the throat of the goat, putting the blood on the altar. There is none of that anymore because Jesus was the final sacrifice. He was the, well, all that stuff in the Old Testament pointed to Jesus. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Jesus did that. It's done. There's nobody sacrificing goats in the sanctuary of this church. So what are the sacrifices? It is an interesting discussion I always quote Romans chapter 12, verse 1, as we present our bodies as a living sacrifice. But you read other places in Paul and even into the book of Hebrews where it says basically that our good deeds, those things that we do in the name of Christ for others, are a spiritual sacrifice. Paul brings a donation of cash from the churches of Asia to Jerusalem because Jerusalem was having a famine and the Christians needed food. And Paul says this was a sacrifice given. So we no longer give physical sacrifices in a physical temple we give spiritual sacrifices in a spiritual house dedicated to Christ. So, what constitutes a sacrifice? Well, we'll get the easy part out of the way. You ready for this? It's a sacrifice. What does that mean? It costs you something. It costs you something. Remember that 
passage in the Old Testament, I'm not going to give anything to God that doesn't cost me something. It cost me something. It is done for the, well, let's just read the passage again. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Why do we throw in the through Jesus Christ? Because you know, right? I hope you know that some of us still do some pretty wretched things. And even sometimes when we're doing the good things, we're not necessarily doing them perfectly with the perfect right attitude. But you know what? Jesus Christ has taken care of that. He has taken care of the sin in our lives. We approach God with our sacrifice through Jesus Christ. So is it going to be, if I sit here worrying, I'm not going to do anything until I can do it perfectly with the perfectly pure motives. You probably won't do anything. I'm an introvert. I am introspective. I sit there thinking everything that I could possibly do wrong. And if I let all of that stop me, I would never do anything. So what do we do? We do good works to God, knowing that Jesus Christ has provided our salvation. The sacrifices are not done in order to earn, merit, warrant my salvation. They're just not. They're done as a sacrifice of praise for what God has done for us. So, we are a spiritual house. A spiritual house has spiritual sacrifices. We are to give spiritual sacrifices. Those spiritual sacrifices should cost us something. But we recognize that we're doing them to God through the finished work of Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. I have a marker over here to go to the book of Isaiah and talk about this at length, but we're not going to do it because it would be too much fun. <laughs> but Isaiah, I can at least tell you the chapter, 28, is talking about, oh, excuse me, it's the next chapter, 29. 29 is talking about the people running amok. They're off worshiping other things. They're off doing other stuff that they're not supposed to be doing. And God says, I am going to put down a cornerstone. And then he refers to the imagery of a plumb line. You know what a plumb line is? It's a weight on a string. You do know, right, that gravity works, okay? You put a weight and you put a string and the string goes straight down. So if you want to measure whether a wall is straight up, you take the plumb line, the bob at the bottom and the 
and you hold it up and you go, oh, that wall is not straight. The cornerstone is what tells us whether the world is straight. And guess what? The people that Isaiah was writing to, the people that Peter was writing to, the people that we come in contact with today, they're not straight with respect to God's word. I know, the word straight means something totally different today. We're not even going to go there. But I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone. A cornerstone is the measure from which everything else is going to be measured. It was true when Isaiah was saying it. It is true today. We have a tendency to measure the scripture against something, whatever it is, our own understanding of things, our contemporary explanation of things. And we use that to tell us what the scripture means. Jesus is the cornerstone. He is what everything ought to be measured from. Chosen and precious by God. And as we're going to see in just a moment, rejected by men. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Huh, let's read the next sentence. So the honor is for you who believe. We have a contrast here. Shame and honor. You're a child, you've done something you know you shouldn't do, and your father shows up. And you don't, I mean, nobody even has to say anything. You already know you're guilty. And that brings shame. But the contrast is that we don't have to suffer under that shame. In fact, we have honor. Why? Because we are a spiritual house giving spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. So, so the honor is for you who believe, but, I hate when that happens, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Let's just stop right there. Wait a minute. He's talking about those who believe, honor, and then he's talking about those who don't believe, and the first thing he says is Jesus is the cornerstone. Why? Once again, he is what everything is going to be measured against. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. What does that mean? Well, I'm the builder getting to, ready to build, I don't know, a cathedral. And I go out to the quarry and I'm looking for stones. That one will work in the wall, that one will work, that one will work, that one, and I'm picking out thousands of them. 
But while I'm looking, I'm looking for the best one. I'm looking for the one that is square. I'm sitting there with my tools measuring it. It's square. It's perfect. And eventually I say, that's the one we're going to use to start from. But the analogy we have here, the picture we have here, is the builder walking around going, that's a good stone, that's a good stone, that stone, and eh, we don't like it at all. Just throw that one away. Maybe we can recarve it to be something. That stone has been rejected. And the Old Testament, Isaiah, tells us that there's going to be a cornerstone that was rejected by the builders. It was rejected by, well, go study the life of Christ, and we know that he was rejected by the spiritual leadership of the time. He didn't fit what they thought he needed to be. He wasn't doing what they thought he ought to do, and he certainly wasn't listening to them. He was rejected by men. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. What is a stone of stumbling? Well, you know what that is. You trip over it. You're walking along and you don't see this rock in front of you and you trip over it. That is a stone of stumbling. We have to understand the contrast here. For those who believe Jesus is the cornerstone, and because he is the cornerstone, he is the foundation for the spiritual house being built. He is the cornerstone of that from which we are able to offer spiritual sacrifices. He is the source of our ability to receive honor and not shame. That's for believers. For unbelievers, he's just something to trip over. I am an unbeliever. I'm living the life that I want. I'm an autonomous human being. I can do whatever I want to do. And ever so often, I trip over reality. What is that reality you're tripping over? It's Jesus. You're living your life thinking that you are in control of everything, that you are in control of your destiny, that you can do what you want without consequences, and every so often, for no reason whatsoever, you're tripping over Jesus. Why? He is the cornerstone. He is the cornerstone whether you accept that he is the cornerstone or not. The contrast is between those who accept him and build their life on that foundation and those who reject him and simply trip over him, but he doesn't go away. Somehow we need to grasp, and this is hard to do at times, We live in an age of, well, build your own truth. You know, whatever works for you. And sometimes we as Christians fall into that. 
Now, it just so happens our truth is the Bible, so that's okay. I mean, but it's still, we get this idea that that's my truth. And if somebody else has their own truth, who am I to argue with them? I mean, if it works for you, fine. But the scripture says it's not going to work for them. There is only one cornerstone. There isn't an alternative reality where there's another cornerstone. You can reject it. And how do they reject it? Well, let's read the next sentence. They stumble because they disobey the word. At this point, we could just talk about all kinds of things. But we won't get too far into it. But ultimately, God has sent a revelation in Jesus. He has sent a revelation in his word. And we, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago at length, are to listen to that word read that word, obey that word, put it into practice, and build our lives on that word. And if you reject that word, you may be able to appear to be doing okay. But eventually, you're going to stumble They stumble because they disobey the word. You ready for this? We are instructed, we are commanded to obey God's word. And if we don't do that, life is not going to be what it was intended to be. But wait. I know lots of good old-fashioned pagans who have accumulated large sums of money. They seem to be happy, and they probably are. Who says it doesn't work? God. Let's just stop right there. God says it doesn't work. God says at some point they are going to stumble on the cornerstone of Jesus. There's a psalm that says, I looked at the wicked and I thought, why are they prospering? Why why are they doing that? Why are they getting what they want? And here I, I mean, this is David, here I am struggling trying to survive for all the people killing me. And then the psalmist says, but then I go into the house of the Lord. And I begin to understand their destiny. Okay? God's word says they're going to stumble because they disobey the word. Ooh. We hate the next five words. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. How many of you vote we not talk about those words? 
There are those who get very uh, uh, adamant about discussing the doctrine of predestination. And remember, we've talked about this because we can't avoid it. In verse 1, I think, of 1 Peter, it talks about us being chosen. There are those who believe in something known as double predestination. Okay? And it goes like this. There are those chosen for salvation, and there are those chosen for damnation. The choice works both ways. The problem with that, as I see it, is that it assumes that at some point you're sitting here in some neutral position, and you've got to be kicked in one way or the other. But the scripture is pretty strong that there is no neutral position. It isn't like we were sitting here all happy and, you know, everything going well, and we were forced to go down the path of unrighteousness. The scripture says, this is where we as unsaved humanity are. Remember, Jesus says, I didn't come to condemn you. You're already condemned. Those who disregard, those who disobey, those who don't follow the word of God are destined to destruction because they're not willing to accept what takes them the other direction. They are destined because that's where that bus is going. You stay on the bus that's headed this direction and you're going to suffer the consequences of it. That's what it means when it says they are destined to do it. Now, there is also this idea, I stumble over the word of God, and I don't repent. In fact, I just get harder and harder in my heart, and so I do it, which makes me destined to do more of it, which makes me destined to do more of it, which I, and you see the downward spiral that is seen in Romans chapter 1. They stumble because they disobey the word as they are destined to do. This should encourage us, drive us, push us to an even greater understanding of the need to understand the word of God and to put that word into practice. That's what we need to do. Okay. The next sentence I really like. You have a question, Jerry? Can you unstumble? Can you unstumble? Well, by God's grace, you can become, yes. So, but ultimately, no. I mean, ultimately, if you refuse to obey, you're never going to, your word, unstumble. <laughs> but you, you, let me just say, who's the you? This is all believers, okay? You are. Notice it's not saying you should do these things. It's saying you are these things. 
You are a living stone. You are being made into a spiritual house. These are the things that we are. You are the salt. You are the light of the world. You are these things. Now, you can be pretty bad at it, but you're still it. Okay? Let's read the list. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his, God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellency of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You are part of the Jewish community. You are part of the people chosen by God. Okay? Or as Tevye says in Fiddler on the Roof, why doesn't God choose somebody else for a while? We're getting worn out. You were chosen. But here you are, a good old-fashioned pagan Gentile, and you're not in that group. You're not in that group chosen by God. You're not in that family. You're not in that anything. There was a time that you were not connected with the things of God. There was a time when you had not received mercy, but now you have. And because of that, you are something. What is that something? You ready for this? You are a chosen race. What is the basis of being in this family? You are chosen. You are a royal priesthood. Remember, the Levites could enter the temple. Whenever someone who was not of the tribe of Levi did something about offering sacrifices, they got in trouble. Go look in the Old Testament under Paul, I mean under Saul, okay? Saul got tired of waiting for the priest to show up, so he did the sacrifices so they could go into battle. And God said, nope, that's not your job. You are not qualified. But now you and I are told that we are priests. We can offer sacrifices. We can intercede to God for those around us. But look at that word in front of it. We are a royal priesthood. We're not just some run-of-the-mill priesthood. We are a royal. We are in the king's family. Can you imagine the audience receiving this letter from Peter, beginning to undergo persecution, beginning to be mocked, laughed at, because, hey, you're tracing after this strange Jewish God. And God comes, that Peter, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, comes and tells us, you're not a nobody. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. 
This was always the picture of what God wanted Israel to be in the Old Testament. A nation dedicated to God. Remember, we had a long discussion about holiness. Holiness is set apart for God's purposes. And God wanted the entire nation of Israel to accomplish that. And they couldn't. Why not? Because they didn't have the mechanism to change their hearts. And I'll add, this is not a Jewish thing. This is a humanity thing. But today, we have the Holy Spirit indwelling in us. Last week's sermon, the sermon you're about to sit through in an hour. We have the Holy Spirit. We have been empowered to do that which God has desired from the beginning, that we would be a holy nation. All of us. It isn't just the staff of the church that's supposed to be set apart for God. It's all of us. But how in the world can I do that? I've got to go to work tomorrow. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. I've got this neighbor that's a horrible, wretched human being. How can I be holy and do the things that I need to do? I'll just go live in the monastery in the desert and get away from all of you. You're messing up my holiness. But the Holy Spirit is empowering us to be a holy nation. And let me just make sure we understand. This nation is not Israel. It's not the United States. It has nothing to do with that. It is us. The church. We. We. We are a chosen race. We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation, a people for his own possession. I was reading an essay a couple of weeks ago. That was actually really weird. But in there, one of the people talking, it was actually a... Uh, symposium that this group had had, one of them said, you know, we only became free when we threw away Christianity because Christianity teaches that we're slaves to God or something, and you can't teach that. We have to be free, autonomous human beings. The scripture teaches us you can go over to Romans chapter 6, that you're going to be somebody's slave. You're going to be a slave to sin or a slave to Christ. The whole idea of being an autonomous human being is a lie of the devil. I mean, it just is. 
we should revel in the fact that we are, that we are a people for his own possession. Why are we a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession? That we, we, you, we, may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We, us, collectively, individually, were living in darkness. We, individually, collectively, were called out of that darkness into the illumination of God's wisdom, his scripture, his, well, Jesus Christ. And now we were living in darkness. Friday night, we're driving this huge, massive truck through a mountain pass in Utah, in the dark, with huge, massive semis coming at us in the other direction. It was terrifying. I was sitting there, I mean, I said, would it hurt if they put up some lights or something so you could see something? No, it'd mess up nature, I'm sure. Light allows us to see. Light allows us to see what's ahead of us, what is behind us, what is on the side of us. But when we live in darkness, all we do is, oh, wait. We stumble over the cornerstone. Any of you ever tripped over something in the dark? All the time. But we have been brought from the darkness into the light. We are these things. Sometimes we don't do a very good job of it. And if we're not doing a very good job of it, whose fault is that? Probably mine. We are called, we are chosen to be priests. We are chosen to be a people who had not received mercy but now have, who were not part of a group. You understand, right? The body of Christ has people from every corner of this planet. And guess what we have in common? Jesus. And you know what? That trumps everything else. That's what we are. And what Peter is telling them, and what I think Peter is telling us, is that we need to understand this and not be like the rest of the world. Because that's going to be next week's lesson. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you have chosen us. I pray, Lord, that we would Offer sacrifices worthy of you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.